Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. joining us just for the first time or after a long absence? Okay, wonderful. Um, so today we have the pleasure of hearing a Dharma duo. Um, this is when we have two of our members get up and sort of tell their story of how they came to the Dharma, how they came to GBF, a little bit of insight on their past and perhaps uh, what their practice is like um, rather than seeing ourselves as teachers of one another, I like to think that it's just taking a slice of a cross section of the membership, opening it up and seeing what you get. <laughs> so uh, it gives us an opportunity to get to know each other better and, and the variety and scope of uh, all those who come to GBF. And so today we have Jeff Lindemood and Michael Murphy. Welcome. So good morning and uh, happy solstice and happy Father's Day. Um, I know we have a few fathers. Um, could the fathers in the group raise their hand? Yeah. Just going to honor you. So we're going to forego formal introductions because I think as we speak about ourselves, um, you may learn more than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our, our format's going to be a little bit of kind of yours, mine, and ours. And we're going to start with, with our relationship because I've, I've known uh, Jeff, whom I've always known as Barat. Um, we met in 1987 in graduate school uh, in a, a 
master's program in counseling psychology with an emphasis in transpersonal psychology. So this was at John F. Kennedy University. And uh, I think that was a really important developmental period for both of us. I was 30, um, Bharat was 29. And uh, this was a program that whose, part of whose philosophy was if you were going to help somebody else, you could only take them as far as you had gone in terms of personal work. So there was a real emphasis on uh, looking at your, your own narrative and doing your own work. So one of the contexts in which we met was a, a year-long group process. There were 16 of us, and uh, among those 16 were three gay men. There actually were four gay men, but one of them was uh, a Mormon guy who was uh, pretty much in the closet. Uh, but, but the other two gay men and I, we really went through the program as brothers, in a sense, with, uh, with the, the love of brothers and also a lot of the sibling dynamics. <laughs> um, and in this group process class, we were often called upon to get in the middle of the circle and, you know, pound on pillows. And the, the guy who facilitated it really was sort of from the encounter group, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s period. So, uh, you know, that was Italian. And, and, and that was, for me, that was kind of mortifying because I, you know, I really had to kind of spill my guts and reveal myself. But it also was uh, really important. Um, so that was, that was the context in which we met. In that program, uh, one of our teachers was Helen Palmer, who teaches the Enneagram. And so we learned both uh, traditional psychiatric diagnoses, but concurrently we learned the Enneagram. And so we would have panels of six people, uh, all of whom were the same type in the Enneagram. Um, the Enneagram is a personality typology. It's very dynamic. It's pretty complicated. But it's a way of helping you understand what your own skew of attention is, what your own preoccupations are, how you're defended. So it's really a lot about your own conditioning and the, the lens through which you look at the world. Um, so the Enneagram was something that I think we both, and all of us in that program, um, we used as a way of understanding ourselves and understanding other people. Um, I, and I was remembering that we also took uh, about a year-long uh, Buddhist psychotherapy course who was one of the Dalai Lama's secretaries, but we really uh, related to the, uh, the Buddha, Dharma, and uh, Abhidhamma stuff. Um, but uh, along the way, uh, the three of us gay men became very close, as you mentioned, and one of the things that we did was uh, spend an intentional afternoon uh, doing MDMA together, <laughs> and um, <laughs> just sharing part of our stories together. And um, I had already given the name Bharat, which was a part of the Hindu epic, the Ramayana. And it's a story about um, four brothers uh, who are princes in this kingdom. And uh, it's Ramayana is the way of Ram. Uh, um, so he's the 
heir apparent to the throne and uh, these other three bear brothers and he would go through this great Leela or, or drama around um, all that happening and the ten-headed evil god takes his beautiful wife and they have to get her back and, uh, but if that's where Hanuman comes in that this is Hanuman, blind monkey uh, who's the uh, symbol of the Indian army, he's a great warrior um, uh, but also the epitome of devotion to Ram and uh, serving Ram. So in that, during that ecstasy experience, um, there was a sense of telling, you know, my experience around that uh, mythic story and realizing that um, it felt like, you know, that I was in the presence of my actual brothers in, in that story, two of the other ones, and that Michael was Lakshman, and uh, Lakshman uh, was uh, the the shadow or the constant uh, company of, of Ram. And when they were banned to the forest uh, for 14 years, which is a whole long story, but uh, Lakshman went with him to protect him and uh, go with him. Uh, Barat remained to uh, sort of, you know, run the house, <laughs> take care of the kingdom until he came back. But, um, and that's continued to be a really uh, profound aspect that's lived on in our connection together. You know, that we have many levels of brotherness together, and um, it's been really nice to know Michael through, you know, so many deep and transformative times. And that it has not only the sibling on the, you know, in and out personality level, but uh, so many other levels to it. Um, and uh, the other two things, um, we also had uh, a uh, brief moment of friends with benefits. We were that, thought better with that. And uh, <laughs> years later, after being apart, after graduate school, I was dating this guy whose best friend was a uh, the boyfriend of Lenny, who some of you know here. Um, and I hadn't been in touch with him for many years either, but he asked me if I wanted to go to a, a uh, play, a reading of a play. And he showed me the advertisement that said, play by Lenny Pinner. I said, Lenny Pinner? And it was our Lenny Pinna. And uh, it turns out he, when I finally connected with him, he said, I know somebody else you know, Michael Murphy. And uh, so anyway, it's a uh, small world. And uh, that's our story. <laughs> so um, one of, one of the... Uh, opportunities of doing this was really to, to reflect on practice and what practice is for me and kind of distilling it down to its essence. And uh, what I landed upon was uh, my desire to really show up for the experience of being human. That, that's, that's what I need help with. Um, so for me, I, I was raised Catholic and uh, that narrative is very much about kind of the hereafter and the uh, you know, <coughs> living for 
something in the future. Um, it never particularly had resonance for me. Um, so this, this sense of, of wanting to show up you know, deeply for both really the agony and the ecstasy of, of being in a body and being a human being, and, uh, and then what gets in the way of that? What are the obstacles to being fully present? And for me, it was very much about um, my, my conditioning and my personal story. So I wanted to share a little bit about that. Um, and I also wanted to start with a, a quote um, which has had, had a lot of meaning for me. And this is from Pema Chodron. Taking refuge in the Buddha means that we are willing to spend our life reconnecting with the quality of being continually awake. Every time we feel like taking refuge in a habitual means of escape, we take off more armor, undoing all the stuff that covers over our wisdom and our gentleness and our awake quality. We're not trying to be something we aren't, rather we're reconnecting with who we are. So when we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, that means I take refuge in the courage and the potential of fearlessness, of removing all the armor that covers this awakeness of mine. I am awake. I will spend my life taking this armor off. Nobody else can take it off because nobody else knows where all the little locks are. Nobody else knows where it's sewed up tight where it's going to take a lot of work to get that particular iron thread untied. You have to do it alone. The basic instruction is simple. Start taking off that armor. That's all anyone can tell you. No one can tell you how to do it because you're the only one who knows how you locked yourself in there to start. And you know, among the first uh, dharma that I read was uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, um, and sh particularly the Shambhala book. Uh, and so that, that whole idea of a warrior and of taking the armor off and kind of being raw and vulnerable um, was very, very appealing to me, uh, and also the courage. Uh, the courage that it takes to do that. Because I know, I think I'm not alone in this, but you know, I really want to be connected in an intimate way. And I don't necessarily mean in a romantic, sexual way, but just to have intimacy. Um, and in order to do that, I think we have, we have to be revealed in some way, and we have to be vulnerable. I feel vulnerable now. Um, and, um, and it takes a lot of courage. Uh, to do that because these places where I locked myself up, um, you know, to revisit those, you pretty much have to revisit the underlying pain, uh, the underlying distress, whatever it was. So um, I, I, I brought a picture of my father. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with something about my father because um, that's my mother. <laughs> she comes later. So, so this is a picture of my father. Uh, he, he was like an exceedingly handsome man who was uh, very charming. His name is Edmund Robert Murphy, and I, you know, I want to honor him 
before I rake him over the coals. <laughs> so so I, my experience of my father was that I always uh, longed to be close to him. I mean, he was such a handsome guy. I, I wanted to be close to him, but I was the fifth child uh, you know, kind of later in my parents' marriage, um, my oldest sibling, my only sister, was 13 year, years older than I. Um, and I think by the time I came along, I was very close to my mom, and there was not so much intimacy between my parents anymore. So, you know, now in retrospect, the way I understand it was I... Uh, you know, I sort of won my mother. I, I had the intimacy with my mother, and so there was a lot of uh, antipathy from my father toward me that I didn't really understand. Um, so anyway, he was very much an enigma to me, and um, I don't want to get sort of lost in that story, but the point is what I learned from my father, because I knew nothing about his personal history, both of his Parents were dead by the time I was born, and he never spoke a word about his history. Um, and then later, in 1984, when I moved to California, I got close to his older brother and only sibling who lived in Santa Rosa, and learned about my father's history and just how completely traumatic and um, you know filled with abuse um, he was on his own by the time he was 13. Um, he grew up in the Stockton-Tracy area, very poor. Um, had uh, his father committed suicide, the Murphy father, and then he had two stepfathers, both of whom were alcoholic and beat his mother. So what it helped me to understand was his strategy to not deal with his past he ended up recreating it, you know, through alcoholism, and um, you know, he was kind of a rageaholic. Um, and but it really helped me to have empathy for him and understanding for him. And actually, going to school at JFK and having, we had to do these five generation maps of our families, genograms, where you tracked patterns in families like alcoholism and cancer and, you know, deaths and loss. <coughs> and um, it just really opened my eyes to kind of the, the, we all have this ancestral legacy, some of which we don't even know what it is, but it's, it's in us. So that's all by way of saying that often in Buddhism, there's, um, you hear about dropping the storyline, and my own experience was, you do that at your own peril if you don't know what the story is. So, uh, because it's so easy to unconsciously enact your past. And, um, I, for example, I very early on made a determination that I would not be like my father, and there's so many ways that I'm like my father. <laughs> so, so I'm sure some of you can relate. Uh, the other part of my... Okay. The other part of my history is that my father was in the Foreign Service, and he worked for a branch of the State Department called USIA, 
not USAID, but United States Information Agency. Um, coincidentally, Mark Johnson, who, whom I met here, uh, his father was in the same branch of the State Department, and when we connected and talked about our lives, there were a lot of parallels, because there's a lot of alcoholism in the Foreign Service. Um, but part of my experience was that I, I was born in France, uh, I lived in Argentina, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, in Bogota, Colombia, and in Helsinki, Finland. And that was before the days of email or Facebook, so part of my experience was getting very attached to people and then losing them and kind of feeling like I had to rub them out because it was too painful to really deal with the, the sense of loss. The other piece of the, the dynamic of moving like that and of alcoholism is there's kind of a more rigid um, cultural boundary around the family. There's not extended family. Um, and you're trying to be socialized as an American, but really having a very other cultural experience. I'm grateful to my father that we never lived in American enclaves. He really wanted us to have an experience of the culture. Um, so, but you can sort of imagine the pressure cooker of, you know, the nuclear family and um, alcohol and being in a foreign country. And my two oldest siblings, um, by the time I was three years old and we moved to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, uh, there was not adequate schooling for them, so they were in boarding school. So I really didn't grow up with them. And then um, one of the kind of subsequent tragedies in my family was that both, both of my two oldest siblings are deceased. Uh, my sister died really unexpectedly at 33 of a rare autoimmune blood disorder. Uh, my oldest brother um, was a Vietnam vet and had a psychotic break, was paranoid schizophrenic. Ended up on the street, um, was actually missing for 16 years and presumed dead. And then in November of 2011, I was at lunch with Roy and my friend Alzac, and I got a phone call, and he had been found dead under a freeway overpass in Sacramento. So that was, uh, uh, you know, devastating in a way, but also uh, I didn't grow up with, with those two siblings, so I didn't really know them. Uh, so it was more a sense of regret that I didn't have a relationship with so um, anyway, it's very interesting to reveal all these things to you because I don't talk about them very much. Um, another thing about narrative that I wanted to say briefly was um, when I was six years old, my mother, um, we, were, we lived for three years in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, my mother took me to see Mary Poppins. And, and so I... Uh, when I was six and seven, I think of these as the Julie Andrews years <laughs> because I became obsessed with that story. And um, it was kind of a way that a narrative can be, can save you, you know, and be really nurturing because this was a story really of kind of a family therapist who comes in, you know, it's a very stern banker father. She disrupts the homeostasis of the family and kind of introduces fun and laughter and, you know, and the father goes off and flies a kite with his kids and then she leaves. Um, 
And then the following year, The Sound of Music came out, and it was basically, <laughs> it was the same story. <laughs> the, like, stern Austrian father blowing the whistle. And, um, except, you know, Julie Andrews marries him. Um, so, and then there was the crushing blow of Audrey Hepburn getting the Eliza Doolittle role. But I've never revealed this to anyone, but when I was uh, six years old, on a, a, a very hot, kind of breezy summer day, I, I went into a neighbor's yard and climbed up onto a fence with an umbrella. <laughs> and I jumped off, you'd think, really fully believing I was going to be propelled up into the clouds. And I came crashing down, and I sprained my ankle. And in retrospect, I think that might be the moment I became a Buddhist. <laughs> because there was a kind of disillusionment with Okay, yeah, I love this story, but I actually, I have to be with this other, I have to find a way to be with the story that's really happening. Um, so, um, are we almost there? Are we doing time-wise? Thank you. Um, so I just, I wanted to kind of make that link between narrative. Uh, I think for me, I learned, uh, I was very close to my mom, but the love was so conditional. I knew exactly who I needed to be. So I was so hidden uh, in so many ways. So for me, it, like coming out wasn't just about being gay, but also uh, about you know, being myself and, and trying to figure out what, what that was in this kind of very rigid, um, structure in which I found myself, and um, you know, it's, this is not an indictment of my family because there was there was a lot of good stuff too, but the things that really shaped me, uh, th those are sort of the salient things that I've covered. Um, anyway, here's here's my mom. Mm. <laughs> um, she's still alive, and she's not, uh, 97. Mm. Um, and um, so I'm really I'm really grateful uh, in in terms of family of creation um, and and sangha. Um, I'm really grateful to to be here. It seems like a miracle. You know, if, if probably if it hadn't been for well, if it hadn't been for World War II, my parents never would have met. Uh, but I think about how you know, if I hadn't been gay, uh, I think that really gave me a very early impulse to um, to find some, something else because I felt like such a fish out of water in my family. I remember when I when I moved to San Francisco in '84, there was a song by Bronsky Beat called Small Town Boy. I don't know if you remember that song. But um, among the, the lines were, the answers you seek will never be found at home. The love that you need will never be found at home. Um, 
And I think I knew that really, really early on. And so that made me curious about what is that? What is that impulse, you know, beyond the identity with all the conditioning and that I'm this compliant person who can become whatever you need me to be. <laughs> uh, but there was this other thing, and I just got really curious about that, uh, kind of about what's essence and what's conditioning, and uh, you know, un unpeeling the conditioning. And for me, that's a lot of what practice is about, and a lot of what enlightenment is about is is simply lightening up. It's it's not esoteric for me at all. Uh, I'm really not interested in kind of jhanas and you know esoteric states, and I just I just want to be here with you. So. Thank you. I learned a lot about you. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, one of the things that strikes me is how similar our genograms are. I had a similar father. He wasn't in the Foreign Service, but he was in the Navy. And uh, so we were pretty nomadic also. Um, I was born in Philadelphia and uh, in a hospital named after the first homeopathic physician, whose his name was Hanuman. Similar pronunciation, but different spelling than Hanuman. I kind of like that. But, um, I was born there. My mother was from Western Pennsylvania, a small town called Bedford near P Pittsburgh. Um, and I didn't know this until I was 13 years old, but um, the person I was raised to believe was my father really had adopted me. And I've never met my biological father. Um, according to her, they dated, and when she got pregnant, he said, well, I guess we'll have to get married. And she said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> and that was, in a nutshell, one of the qualities of my mother. But um, I fortunately was raised the first couple of years by my grandparents, her parents, uh, who had a very large farm, and dairy farm. And I got to experience, you know, I believe, some unconditional love. And um, that, I think, has been foundational to what shredded sanity I do have is having experienced that at some point. Uh, she met my father at an ROTC dance in Philadelphia and um, when they later got married uh, they took me away from my grandparents. We did we moved to Florida for a while and Rhode Island and uh, other places but we moved to his family's uh, in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska where I lived for five years. And he was from a dairy farmer, a dairy farm in uh, Minnesota, originally. But um, yeah, I was very much like a fish out of water. I, I felt like I remember the first time, or at least that I recall seeing him, that he entered the door and it was in this Army Navy uh, based housing. And it was like the door was really far away, like, you know. Uh, um, and there's these black and white tile floors, and it was just like hollow. And it was like, who is that person? And uh, he was taking care of me because my mother was in uh, Providence, uh, uh, the hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, having my three year old brother. I'm the oldest of three boys. 
uh, the youngest of which his name is Michael. Uh, but Alan was being born, and uh, that's when I feel like I met him for the first time. But uh, I always had that connection in that, that sort of you know, typifies my connection to him most of the time growing up. Like, who is this person? Like, he's very, uh, he's a retired truck driver, uh, he's 6'4 and a half, and uh, very much uh, very self-centered and uh, has a huge heart, but he usually has to wound somebody before he realizes the error that he made. And uh, we were physically beat a lot. Um, I remember being so afraid sometimes and him yelling that I would, I would be afraid of losing control of the house. Be, I would be so afraid, and sometimes he would hit us. Um, but uh, I talked to him this morning and wished him a happy birthday, and now we have actually a surprisingly amiable uh, relationship. I, I do feel like I love him, and I have a lot more understanding in that respect. Um, and I have to say that when I found, when my mother told me, told me that he was my adopted father, it was, I was relieved. One, because, uh, like you, I decided I did not want to be like him. But also, it made my life up to that point, it made sense why I felt different. Like, why didn't I have the same connection my brothers did? You know, he was very much into sports, very loud, he's a Leo, very much, you know, uh, in the world, bodily, and um, they were into sports, and you know, I like to you know ride my bicycle, and, uh, race dirt bikes, and solo sports, and ride around with my buddies and stuff. But you know, hitting each other on the field. I, you know, later on, I, I got into martial arts and things, but it just was, seemed so foreign to me. Um, but you know, we did also had good times, and we did a lot of camping and boating and things like that. But you know, it was always like uh, safer to be sort of invisible, you know. And um, so, for me also, uh, you know, growth has been very much about uh, inhabiting my own body and, and the world and being seen and things. And, um, so. Later, my parents then got divorced when I was uh, 15, and that uh, was the first time my mother had a psychotic break or nervous breakdown. And being the oldest and also the closest with my mother, uh, I became her confidant. And she was had paranoid delusions about my father doing this and that. And, um, you know, it was. At the time, it was flattering in a way to be trusted that much as a kid, but it was the ultimate setup because there was I was really powerless and unable to do anything. And she would do things like, you know, the phone would ring in the morning, like getting ready for school. And she'd say, oh, "I'm downtown. What should I do with our dog?" I said, "What do you mean?" Well, she followed me downtown. I'm walking. I'm leaving home. And I went to school on the bus like I did every day, and I told my friend and I, and so we decided to go back and take the car and try and find her. It was such a primitive, like, trying to rescue her, you know. Well, we didn't do that, and <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble because I took the car, and, uh, 
Uh, my father thought, though, that I had her in the car because my friend had long hair, <laughs> and he drove past us. And, uh, <laughs> 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 anyway, um, once he realized what was going on, he, you know, he didn't get upset with me. Um, and she called a couple days later, and, but uh, her brother flew out from Pennsylvania, and then we drove uh, with my youngest brother, Michael, uh, back to be with her family. I was so relieved uh, to be going back there, but uh, that was one of the, that was probably the one time in my life that I ever wondered, like, why would I keep living, you know, and how could there be a God that would let this happen? Um, I just didn't understand, but she got a lot better, and, you know, I was in a new school, and I always, I loved moving, it was always like a new start, you know, new friends, new places, and, um, but uh, that's when I had my first bout with uh, drug abuse. And in retrospect, it was fortunate because I ended up in therapy as a result of that. And uh, I consider that to be my first mentor, a man named Jim Adams, who really, I think, reparented me. Um, and uh, you know, I would go and hang out at his office and see him like three times a week. And eventually, uh, you know, he, it was like, Discovering psychology was like discovering a second floor in my house. You know, I lived up in this very, grown up in this really concrete world. Your body and you produce work, and you know, people judge you based on your friends and what you. You know, just it was very salt of the earth. But to be able to reflect on psychological dynamics was profoundly empowering. And. You know, he normalized or invalidated a lot of, not normalized, uh, validated a lot of my experience and pointed out how abnormal some of the things that happened to me were and um, gave validity to, you know, my feeling disconnected. And, uh, but to be able to reflect on those things from an intelligent perspective and really look at what a healthy family would do, and that, you know, it's possible through revisiting those things to heal things. Not to get rid of them, uh, but to change the relationship to them, come to a new understanding, a more mature understanding. So that was a, a real godsend, literally. Um, and. Um, I saw him for like five years and actually got hired at the drug alcohol center that I was a client at one time. And uh, then I went to college and in my first semester of college I had a mandatory English class in which there was a book of short stories and then there was the story out of the, the first the introduction or the first part of Be Here Now, mm -hmm. written by Ron Knox. That story um, was, I felt like my story. Somebody told my story. And that was such a great gift. Yeah. Uh, I used to think it was like, you know, it was discovering there's another floor in my house, but it was like Buddha Rukov. That, you know, there was such a thing as uh, unconditional love.
letting food and nourishment. And I became a book artist. So that was '79, and uh, I just became the, the focus of my life. Pierce Grace, and I got to meet him. But it wasn't until 1984 that uh, I actually got to do a retreat with him for five days up in uh, Oregon, Washington. And uh, Gail Baldwin was a part of that, and Sabine Hine, uh, Johnny Tall, Red Chan, and I'd never changed before, but I learned like that. And I got to spend uh, almost, about, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour in the school room, and you had to get signed up for interview. Oh, into here. And um, I had all these thoughts, I was going to tell him this, I was going to tell him, you know, various things. And all those things, you know, beforehand I went and meditated in this little chapel. And uh, on the wall was this prayer flag with a Hanuman, a picture of Hanuman, who's got his, he's holding his chest up and he's, you know, showing that the only thing in his heart was Ram and Sita. I went in there and I was like nervously looking around and, and he said, I'm looking right here. And so we just looked at each other and I just started telling him things that I'd never planned on, but it was all my, uh, all the things that I never talked about, you know, my deepest uh, secrets. And um, his, you know, if you've ever done that eye gazing meditation with somebody, you know how the face transforms But after a while, I, all of a sudden, I saw it, it on, over his brow, the same brow that I saw in Hanuman before that. As if, here, the subtle body. And uh, <clears throat> that was honestly the first moment I had a tangible experience of myself as a soul. And that the, my life story before that was really just my own human life story. But I was a soul like we all are, but that I was a part of a lineage, a living lineage, and uh, <coughs> one that I hadn't been looking for. I was not interested in Hinduism. He asked me to stay in touch after that, which I did. Um, part of what I told him was that the year before, my mother had committed suicide, and um, how hard that was, and uh, this, you know, some of the story of her life. 
things about myself, you know, that had happened to him as well, not suicide. Uh, that just changed, shifted the figure around in my whole life. And uh, so that's when I, you know, began uh, going on more retreats. And um, that was in 80, 83 actually, it was 1983. Um, in 1985, I found out that I was HIV positive. And sometime later, I realized it was actually my diagnosis happened on the same day that my mother suicide, which really scared me. I didn't know about the angiogram, but I certainly felt, you know, this uh, possibility of just sort of running off these family you know, patterns. And um, <coughs> so I, I called him and asked him what he would do. And he said, well, you know, have you, we go on a Stephen Vine retreat this, this coming up at Brighton Bush. So I did that. And that was really helpful because in 1985, there were a lot of people with AIDS. And there was about 10 of us there who at least gay if not with HIV, and we had our own sort of panel at one point about that. But one thing I learned with Stephen and Andrea on the line was how when we can be with our own pain, um, there's a point at which our pain becomes the pain, you know, uh, as in like the first level truth, kind of, uh, you know, the cue or the details, uh, some of the content may differ, but we all know the pain of separation and grief. And uh, even if, though, ironically, we may feel most separate <laughs> and alone when we're in that place, that's the nature of that feeling. You know? And uh, is actually what I believe connects us most other things. So since then, um, in addition to years of therapy, um, I also got to do travel a number of times in India. And one of the times in 1990 was with Ram Dass and some other people for about three weeks. And uh, we got to visit the places in Bihar now that he wrote about, the temples and the mountains of Himalayas, where he met in Kuroli Baba and uh, spent weeks in silence under the teachings of Haridas. Um, and, um, you know, it was like the time of my life, I felt like. And he would say, you see that window up there? That's where I was. Every, every day at 5 o'clock, the last bus would go up the hill. And no, there was no way of getting out of here. And I think if I got on that bus, I could be at Chakadera for nearly 24 hours dancing. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> and every day he wanted to leave. You know, it's that like attraction, freedom. But um, that was toward the end of the five year job that I had working on the AIDS board in San Francisco Grandma. I was a Shanti counselor, and my job was to, uh, to provide emotional support to people, the guys with AIDS and uh, their families. And 
I wanted to do that job because one, I had heard of the horror stories that we're all familiar with about how guys were getting diagnosed and uh, their families would show up from Delaware having you know, rejected them years before and disrespecting the mother to take all their belongings and um, leave in shame of their you know, sinful uh, family member. And it just was also, as someone with HIV, uh, one of my strategies, I've sort of been counterphobic in my life in that when I'm afraid of something, uh, I have at times wanted to go right to it so that it would help, I could have images. So one of my greatest fears was dying or being approaching death and being treated as if I wasn't there anymore, the way that they can do in hospitals so well, you know, objectify me. And that with anything, I, maybe I could help convey to someone else that they weren't alone there. Someone heard them or felt about them. And uh, so I got to do that. It also took a lot out of me, really. And um, at the end, uh, a lover I had been with many years before uh, himself uh, died of AIDS and he was originally from Mexico and I helped him go back to visit his families and, uh, with oxygen tanks you should not give him medications and things but it totally you know my own health was declining from the burnout and you know I've been opposed to standard therapies that were out there like ACT so Eventually the job was defunded and we were all laid off. Um, but to make a long story short, I had to go through another round of addiction and, and uh, became, for over 10 years, addicted to crystal meth. And um, despite all of my spiritual credentials and you know, my knowledge and things, um, and fortunately in 2007, Went into therapy, outpatient treatment for that, and I haven't used since, and now working in rehab. But it taught me a lot about spiritual materialism at the time that I spoke to Linda Shaycox about, and um, that this, these practices and things we do are not to bolster or make our egos more comfortable. Um, and and it's also important, as Michael said, to know where our tender places are, what's hurt inside of us, you know, and hopefully develop some healthy sense of self. As Ram Dass says, you've got to become somebody before you become nobody. <laughs> and uh, so I'm practicing being somebody. <laughs> Jeff, Brock, you know, I still honk my horn. <laughs> swear under my breath and all those things, but less, less over time. And, uh, I'm just so grateful to have had mentors like I have and to, even if in the darkest moments of my life, somehow part of me will say, wrong. It's just, you know, the veil will pierce at some point. It's just can only get so intense before that happens. And um, 
later I kind of understood that in another way during a course on service that Brother Das taught in which they're talking about change and he said as long as we're not resting in the place that doesn't change we'll be afraid of the place that does teacher of the San Francisco Insight Meditation Community of San Francisco, of San Francisco. He teaches at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and leads intensive meditation retreats internationally. His teaching is influenced by both Burmese and Thai streams of, of the Theravada tradition, as well as Zen and Tibetan Buddhist practice. He's also a teacher of the Diamond Approach, a school of spiritual investigation and self-realization developed by A.H. So we hope you can join us for that. Um, Donna is the uh, term for generosity. We hope that you will be generous in supporting the saga and all that we do and the outreach and everything and having this wonderful space. Uh, suggested donation of 8 to $10 is appreciated, but anything you can give is it's most welcome. Um, and uh, as we go into our... Um, Social period, please wish David Margolis happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> the big, is it a big one, David? Is it a big one? The, the big one? You mean 59? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Do we have a host today? Kenny. Hi. Um, I'm the host for today. I brought some. Strawberries, cookies, and teas. So enjoy yourselves. And if you have tea with a cup, please wash them with hot soapy water. And as Tom said, uh, suggest the donation is in ten dollars. I will be walking around with the Donna bowl, so we can pass the, the money in the bowl. And if you are new and want to get onto the mailing list, there's a sign-up sheet right outside. And lastly. I think people gather for lunch at about 12.30 at the door, so feel free to join the group. Other announcements? Uh, yes. I, I just want to say, we had hoped to leave a little space for questions, but we'll, we'll be out there if you have any, any questions for us. But thank you both for a remarkable show. It's great. I just wanted to say that there's a, I have about three um, tomato plants. If anybody wants to rear them, I'm looking for a dot. They're right upstairs. I'll grab them if you like.
By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.